Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1918, former Confederate Army Major Orrin Smith wrote a speech explaining how he came up with the design of the first Confederate national flag, the Stars and Bars. That's the one with three horizontal bars, not least battle flag with a cross. The three stripes, he said, represented the state, the church, and the press. If the Confederate press was really one of the three pillars of the Confederacy, why is so little known about it? We'll find out from Professor Deborah Redden Van Tool, author of The Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the annex of Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, the home office located on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University or in the Brewster Building where we normally are, and thus speaking not for the other residents of 205 Oxford Road, just for myself, not for Heidi, the standard poodle, or Candy, the annoying cat or uh, anyone else who lives here, just me. And likewise, my guest will speak only for herself tonight, as always. Well, it's a a day of national celebration. Everybody knows, of course, that October 12th, historically, is the day celebrated across the country as my birthday. I'm 58 years old today. Uh, So we can enjoy uh, the day that used to be known as Columbus Day, now Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, and also Jerry's birthday. But more important, uh, I want to thank those of you who sent in uh, queries about how we're doing here in Greenville, North Carolina. Last weekend, Hurricane uh, Matthew swept through and left a lot of uh, rainwater in eastern North Carolina, in the Greenville area. I'm happy to say that uh, we're okay here at Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone I know in the area is is doing well. Uh, There was a lot of rain and a lot of delayed flooding. The nature of a flood as a natural disaster is quite peculiar. We've had beautiful weather the last several days, just gorgeous, cool temperatures, clear skies, lots of sunshine. But the drainage from last weekend's rain has been causing rivers to rise, and the Tar River here in Greenville has not yet crested. The bridge at the end of the at the end of Oxford Road, where it connects to 10th Street, is now closed. It's underwater, and the water is rising uh, to the nearest house. Probably won't reach it, but uh, it's it's getting close. It's almost as high as Hurricane Floyd in 1999. 
which is a generational event that people around here still talk about. I was not here when that happened, but ask anybody about any storm and they compare it to Floyd in 99 when the water reached, I think, 29 feet was the uh, mark on the gauge. This current, which is about 19 feet above flood stage, this current flood is at about 24, 25 feet, not as quite as high as, as Hurricane Floyd here in Greenville. But in other places, uh, in Kinston, apparently it's even higher. Uh, if you watched any news, you've seen places like Lumberton, North Carolina, that are completely uh, submerged. They, they've been devastated by this. We've been fortunate in Greenville not to suffer quite as much. Uh, but East Carolina University has been closed for the week. That's why I'm broadcasting from home this evening. And uh, uh, we a lot of other places have been closed for making do and uh, adjusting to the, the uh, peculiar natural disaster that is a flood situation. But we're, we're high and dry here at Civil War Talk Radio uh, Annex, and uh, likewise the Brewster Building is fine. The buildings on campus are fine. Didn't lose any trees this year. The last big hurricane that came through took down two big trees from our yard. This one did not, just a lot of branches, a little rain in the attic, but uh, nothing nothing too drastic. So we're very relieved and happy about that and certainly keeping all our neighbors in mind who did uh, lose homes or other property during this, uh, during this event. But we are carrying on here, although classes are off, Civil War Talk Radio marches on. We'll be continuing to march on in the weeks ahead. We've got uh, Excellent shows coming up, excellent topics for shows in the next few weeks. Next week, James Hofstadt joins us to talk about uh, Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin, whom he identifies as Lincoln's bold lion. We've got David Mowry uh, coming up on the 26th of October, 2016, to talk about Morgan's Great Raid. The, uh, that was a listener suggestion, and we're always happy to have your suggestions for people to come on the show. On November 2nd, Victoria Bynum will be with us to talk about her uh, various aspects of her work. She's already been on some years ago to talk about her book, The Free State of Jones, but now we can talk about the movie that was made from it, as well as her other works. So it'll be interesting to hear what it's like to have a serious academic historical work made into a Hollywood movie. On November 9th, Forging Ahead, uh, Paul uh, Kahan, Kahan, I'm not sure I'll have to get that pronunciation. K-A-H-A-N. I once had my name mispronounced. I've never gotten over that, so I, I definitely want to try to get his name right. Um, his book is Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. And uh, Cameron is quite the character, as most of you know. So it'll be interesting to find out about that. On the 16th of November, G. Ward Hubs, Guarding Greensboro, a Confederate company in the making of a Southern community. That's about Greensboro, Alabama, not Greensboro, North Carolina. For those uh, looking for the opportunity to give me a piece of their minds in person, I'll be in Greensboro this week on Friday, uh, be October 14th, to speak at a conference on uh, Governor Aycock of North Carolina and the public history aspects of naming buildings after him or renaming them after they've been named after him. We've had that discussion on our campus here, so I'll be talking about how we did it at East Carolina. Uh, so if you're in the Greensboro area on Friday, come on by the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and I'll be happy to talk Civil War once I'm off the stage with you. You can find out what's going on on all Civil War Talk Radio-related events at impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Talk Radio website. Mark Gaffney keeps that going. You can also find out about the books we talk about on the show. You can buy them, click through to Amazon through that website, and we get some support for it. And, of course, you can always donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund and Veterinary Fund. Heidi the Poodle has just walked in to remind me she's 12 and a half and she's kind of kind of in the twilight zone. We're taking care of her and uh, uh, 
if I'm not spending the money on Civil War books, it's on exotic pills and ointments for the dog, or beverages to uh, relieve the, uh, the, the stress of caring for the dog. All these things can be done with your donations to Civil War TR at AOL.com, none of which is tax deductible. Uh, unlike some people, I have paid federal taxes for the last 18 years and will continue to do so on your donations. So uh, please, uh, you can't deduct it. And I, I don't cheat either. I will pay the appropriate tax for those for that income. So enough uh, chit-chat about where the show is. We're high and dry and uh, forging ahead tonight talking about the press in the Confederacy. Uh, the book under discussion is called The Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. The author is Deborah Redden Van Tool. And Professor Van Tool, are you there? And there's can you hear me there. now? Now I can hear you. There you go. Okay, yep. I'm Welcome here. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. And we we corresponded a little bit and got to a first name basis. Is it okay uh, if, if if I call you Debbie? Do you appreciate? Is that a, Oh no, please do. I much prefer that. And then please call me Jerry. That will shorten the okay. show for both at both ends that way. Okay. So. Um, the first thing I have to ask you uh, about is uh, I was doing a little online research, make sure I had, actually trying to find the pronunciation of, of your name, make sure I got that mm-hmm. right, and came across uh, a website suggesting you have some involvement with Irish music. Is that accurate? If that is very accurate. I play with a group called Decaden. In fact, they're rehearsing outside the door I'm in tonight, <laughs> and as soon as we're done, I'm going to go join the rehearsal. Good. What do you play? Um, I play harp, and I play the Irish whistle. Excellent. Yeah. I, I play fiddle, old-time style. Uh, the Irish tunes have too many notes and require too much intonation. <laughs> so I, well, there's not that much difference between Irish and old-time, so come on down to Augusta, or we'll come up to you in Greenville. You're not that far from us. That would be fun. I would love, love to play yeah. any time. Well, um, let, let's talk about your your interest in uh, okay. Confederate press. You, you, uh, how did you get started in the, this topic? I said in the introduction we don't know a lot about it, but uh, what got you into it? Well, yeah, okay, so you're going to laugh. I used to teach at a different school, and I won't name it, but it's across the river in South Carolina, and I was teaching a journalism history class, when a, and, and I required the students in that class to do papers based on primary sources. A student came to me wanting a Civil War topic, and I suggested that she look at how um, the Augusta Chronicle here in Augusta, Georgia, covered Sherman's March to the Sea, because I knew there was a full run of the newspapers that existed from, from the period of, the Sherman's, of Sherman's March. She didn't want to read six weeks' worth of newspapers, and... Um, so she chose a different topic. But I was in the library one day with nothing else to do and just stopped by and pulled out the uh, microfilm and started reading the newspaper, and I was just kind of captivated at that point. I felt like I'd been in a time machine. And um, I, I had taught for 10 years before I, had, before I went back to do my Ph.D., so as a result of that experience, when I went back to do my Ph.D., I knew exactly what I wanted to work on because I had just gotten entranced with the Confederate press because everything I was reading about the Confederate press in the secondary literature and things like Jay Cutler Andrews, The South Reports of Civil War, or um, Donald Reynolds' uh, book about um, editorials in the lead-up to the Civil War, I'm blanking on his name right now, um, portrayed the Southern press in a way that I wasn't seeing in the newspapers I was reading. And so it was that discrepancy between what the literature was saying and what the actual newspapers were that made me say, okay, I've got to tell this story because it's one that nobody knows. They, they don't understand. They don't have the truth about the Confederate press. And that's, that's really what led me to, uh, um, to the interest in it. I, that and the fact that um, this is the only time in American history since we've had a well-developed press that the press has been in an actual war zone on American territory, and that made the Confederate press interesting to me as well. So the press faces not only the, the normal pressures of wartime, the question of uh, press freedom versus security of uh, censorship, but also the actual military uh, exactly. events of the war. Um, I, I, I wanted to 
in just 20 seconds, what are, what's one thing that everybody thinks they, that, that was in the literature that everybody knows about the press that, that, that we're going to find out later tonight is not the case? Um, okay, so in the literature you're going to see the claim that Southern journalists supported slavery pretty much monolithically and that there was, um, and this is because the planters, the, the planter class, the upper class, had um, cowed them. It's, it's a term that historians use, um, planter hegemony. Um, I hate to use that kind of jargon, but that's, that's mm-hmm. what you're going to see in the literature. Um, that because of planter hegemony, uh, journalists were afraid to tell the truth about slavery. And that's not why they didn't tell the truth about slavery. That's not, that makes sense. They, that's not, that's, they, they may not there's have told another the reason for slavery. why they did right. not criticize slavery. Well, we'll find out that reason and more yeah. from the book Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. Our guest, Deborah Redden Van Tool. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking this evening with Debbie Van Tool, author of The Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. We ended up the first segment with the observation that in the literature about the Confederate Press, we read of planter hegemony, that the journalists were cowed and, and simply uh, towed the line of, of supporting slavery because they were afraid to do otherwise. Uh, you're suggesting not that they criticized slavery, but that they had other reasons for uh, maintaining their position. What what did you find? What I found was that Confederate journalists were much more likely to be slave owners than the average Southerner. Um, by 1860, about 25% of Southerners would have owned slaves. My editors um, had a slave-owning rate closer to 40%. So what you have is a uh, a profession which is part of the slave-owning uh, class or is aspiring to become a part of the slave-owning class. And so they're clearly not going to criticize an institution that they believe in themselves and that they, in fact, are participating in. And I think that that was one of the most surprising facts. I, I had not known that that would be what I found, but it it was fascinating to to do that research and and get to know who the editors were from a um, from a statistical um, perspective, and particularly with regard to their slave owning in such large numbers. Well, when we think of 
journalists we tend to think of ink stained wretches uh, with, <laughs> yeah. with with ragged clothes you know not mm-hmm. you don't get rich as a as a reporter or even an editor but you your analysis found not only that the editors were re- relatively well off but also that that the subscribers to papers tended to be above average economically I found that yeah, surprising. Um, yeah, newspapers were not cheap in those days. The The average subscription price for a daily was about the equivalent of a uh, month's salary for a, uh, let's say, manual laborer. You know, would have run somewhere around $7 a month, and that's about what they would have made. Now, that's in $1860, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the audience for newspapers was... was different than than what it became in the early 20th century. We didn't have a mass society at that point. We didn't have a mass media. We didn't have a mass audience. We had a very specially targeted audience that consisted of the political and economic elite. Um, And that, that was true really from the earliest days of newspapers. Now, that doesn't mean that the um, non-elites weren't interested. People would meet at the post office or the tavern on mail day, and um, those people who could afford newspaper subscriptions would actually read every word of the newspapers out loud to those who were sitting around in the audience or standing around in the audience. And so that was how the people who couldn't afford newspapers could find out what was going on. Was they, they actually showed up and listened to them being read out loud. There was interesting, I found it interesting that you point out the circulation of a paper is just reflects how many copies go out, but the papers get passed hand to hand or read aloud, so one copy might actually reach a number of readers. That's right. One newspaper actually estimated that each copy, each individual copy, might go through as many as 10 or 12 hands. Um, so if they had a, an actual circulation of 2,000, which was fairly common, um, those, those 2,000 copies would have to be multiplied by 10, so that gave them a much larger reach, um, which is the word that we use in journalism to talk about who, who actually is seeing the newspaper, not just who's subscribing to it. Um, and if you think of it in those terms, then... Um, the newspapers were far more influential than you might think they would be just if you look at the subscription numbers. So so how big overall is the Confederate press in terms of numbers of papers or numbers of, or any, any measure you want to give? It depends on what point you're looking at. But if you're mm-hmm. starting in 1860 um, or, or early 1861 as, as we're moving towards war, you're looking at somewhere over a 1,000 newspapers, and that's in the um, main Confederate states. I didn't include places like Arizona that mm-hmm. might have had a representative in the Confederate Congress, but the, the 13 states that we think of as the Confederacy. Um, so somewhere around 1,000 newspapers. Um, by the end of the war, it was just over 200. It, and it looked like a lot of the decline occurred right away. That, it you, did. You, you, you have a lot of statistical tables, I should tell the listeners, that, that make this approach different from some other mm-hmm. books on the topic. And one of them shows a real decline between 61 and 62, and That's then right. it more or less levels off. So what happened? You know, I think what really happened is the same thing that's happening with newspapers in America today, and, and I don't know whether this would be of interest to your audience, but we're seeing a decline in newspapers today, mm-hmm. and part of that is because we have and have had too many newspapers, and they've been functioning on the margin. They've been able to stay in business, but when the bad economic period hit in 2008, those that were just sort of hanging on were the first to go under. The same thing was true in 1860 and 1861. Newspapers in that period were not terribly profitable, um, especially since so many of them were were small-town weeklies. An editor could probably make enough to maybe support his family, but since so many Southern editors had money of their own, a lot of times the newspapers only existed because the editor had money to put into it. They couldn't make it on subscriptions and advertising. And as more and more editors and sometimes entire staffs left the newspaper to join the military, the Confederate military, newspapers might close then, but you also had the marginal newspapers um, going out of business, the, the ones that just didn't have the money to stay in business. So it was a couple of reasons, um, really, it was, that, that I would cite. It was a, the decision, like one of the Anderson, uh, South Carolina newspaper staffs, 
just decided they were all going to go join a um, South Carolina unit together. So they announced the closure of their newspaper and went off and joined the Army. In other cases, you had newspapers that were just struggling and couldn't make it. So the the number gets pared down substantially by by the end of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the the papers themselves? Do, do they look different from modern newspapers? Yes. Um, if you remember what the New York Times looked like prior to the early 2000s when they started running pictures on the front page, when you had still had the rules down the, the columns, down between the columns of the front page of the New York Times, um, with, and, and with very few, if any, um, visuals on the front page, then, then you're, you're in the neighborhood of what a newspaper in this period would look like. In the South, most newspapers ran four pages. Pages one and four were for advertising. Pages two and three were where they put the news. Um, and there might be some advertising on those pages, but they were devoted primarily to news. Um, as the war progressed, there ended up being problems with getting supplies uh, to, to make newspapers with. There were 367 paper mills in the United States in 1860, but only fewer than 30 of them were in the South. So the, the supply of paper in the South mostly came from overseas, but with the blockade, that couldn't happen. So paper was a huge problem for Confederate newspapers. So what you would see across the time of the Civil War is they would decrease in size from the large broadsheets that used to exist down to sometimes even um, uh, something that might be the size of an 8.5 by 11 sheet that they would print only on two sides. It wouldn't actually even be, be four pages, so newsletter size in some instances. In Mississippi, uh, paper got so scarce that the Vicksburg papers, for example, actually printed on the back sides of wallpaper. So um, uh, it just depended on what you could get to print on, but they had all kinds of issues with uh, um, trying to, to get the raw materials to print with. And most of, most of the newspapers would find a way to get something out, but usually not the same size or the same amount of uh, uh, space for news that they had had before the war began. So, so there's an evolution in, in size, an evolution in content. And they didn't have the technology to reproduce uh, photographs or images in these... Not at that point. That, that technology doesn't come along until the end of the 19th century. Um, they could do um, what we call line drawings, and, and that sounds just exactly what it's like, um, but it's where you take just a, a drawing and then convert it into a woodblock or into um, an engraving on metal. But most newspapers in the South did not have that capability. Um, when newspapers in the South had used um, images in the past, they would ship them up to Harper's in New York and get the engravings done there and then shipped back down to the South. But, of course, with the Civil War, there was no opportunity for um, doing business with Harper's any longer. There was very briefly an illustrated newspaper in Richmond um, and they did have its own engravers, but they were very poor. Um, they did very poor work compared to what you are used to seeing in something like Harper's Weekly, which you can see online if you're looking for that, or you may have seen some uh, reproduction copies of it at um, some of the national parks or that sort of thing that deal with the Civil War. So very few images at all, um, it, mostly just text. So, I mean, the North, you mentioned Harper's Weekly and, and Frank Leslie's illustrated uh, newspaper, ones listeners might be familiar with, and the South does not have equivalents of those. Uh, one thing that students always uh, run into uh, expectations with is headlines, that stories, mm-hmm. a big story should have a big headline, uh, but these papers did not have the same kinds of headlines that we have today. No. Now, they started moving in that direction as a result of the war, um, mm-hmm. but printing technology at that point required type to be set in columns, so you couldn't have headlines running across columns. It just was physically impossible for that to happen. But what we saw happening instead then was getting what we call multiple decks or multiple lines in headlines, and so you might have an uh, you know all, all uppercase um 
line followed by a bold-faced line followed by an italicized line. But anyway, you might get six or eight lines of a headline, and that's how you knew it was an important story. Um, other stories might have no headlines or just a single line, and that those would be sort of coded that they're less important. Um, but so, so if you're looking for big headlines, look for deep headlines, not wide headlines in that period. So let me ask a different question. These southern papers, at one level, they have the story coming to them. You write about uh, papers in Georgia when Sherman's troops marched through the state. But for the most part, if you're a newspaper in Texas and there's fighting in Virginia or Tennessee, uh, it's far away. Did all these hundreds of small town papers each have correspondence at the front, or how did they get their news? That varied, but there were a lot of interesting ways that that happened. Um, Many, many newspapers would have someone in a unit from their town who would serve as a correspondent and would write letters back to the newspaper. Um, So so you might have, um, you know, Joe Smith, who is a private in the 5th Texas Regiment, um, volunteers or whatever um, who would be writing for his hometown newspaper in Tyler. And so he would send letters back whenever he could. Now, whether they would make it all the way back to Texas, that was one of the problems Texas newspapers had because they were so far away from the front. Um, but some newspapers did have professional correspondence, uh, only a handful. I think we know maybe 80 um, uh, professional correspondents uh, through the South, and there were three who worked for Texas newspapers, um, a couple in Clarksville, and I'm trying to remember where the third one is, and I'm not remembering right now, but they mostly reported from the Western Front, because they, they, they were professional journalists who had volunteered for the Army and were stationed in places like um, uh, Arkansas or uh, Louisiana or portions of Texas, so they were corresponding from their part of the um, of, of, of the the war that they were seeing. You also had attempts along the way to create the equivalent of the Associated Press. The Associated Press existed before the Civil War as a wire service, but when the telegraph lines got cut, then the Southern Press's access to the Associated Press was cut off as well. So there were a couple of attempts early in the war to start... um, to start wire services. Those failed, but in 1863, a group of editors met in, here in Augusta and created what they called the uh, Press Association of the Confederate States of America, the CPA. I'm just going to call it that for uh, mm-hmm. abbreviations sake. And that was a very successful wire service. It was run by John Thrasher, who had um, experience as a reporter in Cuba during a a revolution there in the 1840s. He had worked in newspapers in Texas um, and had a a strong background as a journalist, and he became the superintendent of the CPW and, in fact, created, I think, what must have been the very first ever code of ethics for American journalists. I can't find one any earlier than his. So he really professionalized the practice of journalism. He gave, he set up word limits. He required objectivity. You couldn't put opinion into the stories. Um, and so he had a really very high-quality press association that functioned from 1863 to the end of the war. So there were a variety of ways that news came in. Sometimes it would come in, one of my favorites is, a, a trustworthy gentleman came to town, and uh, that, that's often a, 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 um, a an attribution that's used in stories. So clearly, travelers were, would bring news as well. So there were a variety of ways of getting news. Now, the, the trustworthy gentleman who who was not named uh, brings up the fact some of these correspondents are anonymous. Most of uh, them. I thought are. that was why. Why did they not give their names? Well, I think the the main reason was they were afraid of retaliation if they printed something that a general or other military commander didn't like. Um, that was also the practice of the day. You you didn't use your real name when you were writing for a newspaper. It was a little bit different in the North. Um, general Sherman had a reporter with him who re- published a story that he didn't like. He thought it revealed too much military information that was sensitive, and Sherman was ready to hang that reporter as being a traitor. 
and General Grant and President Lincoln all had to get involved with with General Sherman to get the reporter let loose. And Sherman finally agreed to let him go only if he could get an agreement that from that point on, um, Northern correspondents would all either sign their names or use their initials on their stories so that they could be identified. But that didn't happen in the South. Uh, There was no requirement for that. So a few correspondents wrote under their initials, and we've been able to identify them, or some we've been able to identify in other ways. But most Southern correspondents, we don't have a clue who they were because Anonymity was the was the practice of the day, and that didn't change in the South. So it, it's fascinating how many ways journalism differed from uh, from contemporary practices. Uh, you mentioned briefly the idea of a code of ethics that that called for objectivity and, and factual accuracy and mm-hmm. keeping opinions out of stories. Uh, which really was not the norm in journalism in the mid-19th century. We're going to take another short break, and we'll come back and talk about that question with our guest, Deborah Redden Van Toole. She is the author of The Confederate Press and the Crucible of the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Deborah Redden Van Toole, author of The Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. We've been talking about the ways in which journalism differed in the 1860s, and especially in the Confederacy. Uh, in your book, you describe how journalism was, was changing very much, even before the Civil War, that where at one time the norm was for every newspaper to be associated with a political party, to obtain perhaps much of its financing from that party, to be an unabashed advocate for that party with no pretense of objectivity. Uh, that model is starting to change, uh, you, you argue in the book, uh, as the, the war begins. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, especially in the Confederacy, um, you have the issue that there are no political parties. So um, so there's no political party to fund or a newspaper or for a newspaper to be loyal to. And that had um, had begun to happen in the South before the Civil War, because before the Civil War, we only have one political party in the South, and that's the Democrats. Um, Newspapers had, in the earlier part of the um, 19th century, been very closely tied to parties, even to the point of editors being party officials, of editors being paid salaries by parties, um, by editors uh, being uh, uh, responsible for getting the word out about um, party issues. 
But as we move through the 19th century, uh, moving closer to the Civil War, we have so many upheavals with political parties. The Whigs come to a crashing close. The um, Know-Nothing Party or the American Party exists briefly and ephemerally. Um, and then the Republicans come into being, though not in the South. So as we move closer to the Civil War, newspapers cease being a, I'm sorry, political parties cease being a source of stable funding for newspapers. So newspapers have to start looking for other ways of making sure they're going to have the money to print each issue and pay salaries and that sort of thing. And so as we move closer towards the Civil War, get into the later antebellum period, we see editors more likely to assert their independence and perhaps disagreeing with the party because they aren't so reliant on the party for their financial well-being anymore. They, they're relying more on advertising and um, um, subscriptions. There's a great story out of North Carolina, and there was an editor who was the um, who ran the chief newspaper for. I want to say it was for the Constitutional Unionist Party. Um, I may not be right about that, but I think that's who it was. And the head of the party had resigned, and they had not replaced the head of the party. Well, there were only two two people who could call a party convention, and that was the head of the party or the head of the party's uh, or the editor of the party's newspaper. And the editor did not think their party should be running anyone. And this is for a gubernatorial election. Didn't think they should be running anyone, and so he refused to call the convention. And the the party just absolutely fell apart because. The newspaper refused to do what the party wanted done. Um, And that was what we started seeing, more assertions of that kind of editorial independence. Um, You all had a governor there in North Carolina, William Holden, who was editor of the Raleigh Standard. And he started out as a Whig but then becomes a Democrat. And uh, he really, more than the party bosses, was running the parties that he was affiliated with because his newspaper had so much power. So they kowtowed to him more than him kowtowing to them as we get closer to the Civil War period. So it's because newspapers, as I said, cease to be a, a reliable source of funding that newspapers really start developing more ideas about independence from politics. There's still likely to support a political perspective, although that might be something as general as Southern rights. It wouldn't necessarily be uh, the Democratic Party. So now when the Confederacy establishes itself, one of its uh, one of its points was that they would have the opportunity to go back to the Founding Fathers' vision of a political society without parties. And right. they, they would have no parties in the South. As you, as you mentioned, there were no formal political parties in the Confederacy. But that didn't mean the absence of politics. You still have no. people with different views. So so what happens, and how do the papers figure in that? You know, what really happens is we do what human human beings do. We fall into factions. Um, and in the South, the two main factions were the pro-Davis factions, the pro-President Davis, and then the pro-Vice President Stevens factions. Uh, and I'm thinking on a national level as opposed to mm-hmm. states. In states, you're going to have some different factions, but at the national level, those were the two big ones. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there was a very um, uh, massive, I mean, not it wasn't a majority, but it was quite large, and very effective peace movement in the Confederacy. And it was run by or headed by Vice President Alexander Stevens, um, and he had a lot of newspaper support for his perspective. Now, that newspaper support was was really focused mostly in North Carolina and Georgia, but those voices were loud, and they were voices that were respected in the Confederacy, or up to a point anyway, and they had an influence. I mean, uh, William Holden, who I mentioned earlier, was involved with the peace movement in the summer of 1863 and published a, I guess you could call it a resolution, that he thought each county should pass that advocated getting the Confederate government to go to the federal government and work out a peace, and in the absence of that, perhaps withdrawing support for the federal, I'm sorry, for the Confederate government. Um, 
that was huge. Uh, that that had Jefferson Davis summoning Zebulon Vance, who was the governor of North Carolina, to Richmond to explain what was going on in North Carolina and to try to figure out what could be done about Holden. Um, Davis was not one to censor newspapers, but I think he came as close to doing it with Holden as he did with anyone through through the war. I think if Holden had not had his newspaper mobbed by some uh, very pro-Davis people, that might have been the one case of censorship that we had in the Confederacy. But um, it was it was really revolved. Uh, I'm sorry, we really have factions revolving around those two personalities and their different stances on whether the war should continue to be prosecuted or whether the South should pursue an early peace so that it could have some room to negotiate some advantages um, rather than just having an all-out defeat. Now, if the press is effectively resisting Davis or leading the anti-Davis sentiment and uh, dissent, you mentioned uh, Davis did not censor the press. Why not? Why did the why did Davis tolerate so much negative press, which uh, some historians have argued contributed to the ultimate weakening of, of the Confederacy? Why did he let that go on? You know, he did a, uh, an interview with Rose Greenhow, and in that he said to her that he did not think it was right to interfere with the press, and that's the only thing that I've ever found that he actually said about it. But he he was very definite that the press was independent. It had a role as a check on government, and that for government to interfere with the press was a it was going too far. It was just not within the the sphere of what government was to do. And what I find interesting is that it was not only an attitude that Davis had, but any time General Lee, for example, went to the Confederate Congress and asked for censorship legislation or that sort of thing, or wrote to the Secretary of War, he always got a response back, or any of the other generals as well, got a response back saying, we don't interfere with the press here. Use what power you have as a commanding general. If you don't want reporters in your camps, throw them out. But don't don't turn to us. Don't ask us to censor the press because we're not going to do it. And I just I find that a fascinating perspective from the South um, because... They were trying to win a war, and, you know, I'm a journalist by training, so I have some pretty strong feelings about freedom of the press, but even I recognize that there are times that you have to back off maybe on freedom of the press if you're going to win a war, because there are times that you don't need to talk about certain things publicly, like where troops are located or what war plans are, that sort of thing, Um, and the Confederacy just took a very different stance on that. One of the things I find particularly interesting about that, uh, as you note, the Confederate Constitution had the language of the the First Amendment uh, Mm -hmm. in it, not not as an amendment, but part of the body of the Constitution. And there's this this strong devotion to liberty for for free political people to to say what they want. But the Confederacy, or the the South, the slaveholding South, also has a tradition of... uh, of not of censoring speech, of not allowing anti-slavery speech, uh, you know, from mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson's postmasters burning the the mail with anti-slavery pamphlets in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. So the, these that didn't disappear in wartime. They didn't say, "Well, press can say what they want. We can start criticizing slavery now." You know, it never was that formally put, and I just don't. I never saw criticisms of slavery. Um, I just didn't see that, I, and I think that that's because the Southern editors were um, supportive of the institution. They thought that that was the proper um, uh, relationship between white masters and black bondsmen. Um, now, as to other forms of censorship, um, Mark McNeely has done a couple of books that look at the um, control of political speech in the North and in the South, And what he found was that in the South there was extreme control of political speech by individuals, but that the government never messed with the press. They just they just stayed out of the press's way and let them pretty much print what they wanted to. I mean, Nathan Morse, who was editor of the Augusta Chronicle, um, 
absolutely wrote scathing articles calling uh, Jefferson Davis a despot and saying that if we've got to have a despot, give us Lincoln. We'd rather have Lincoln than what we've got with Davis. You would think that that would get him put in jail for treason or worse, and the only thing that ever happened to him was in 1864, the Confederacy finally withdraws their national advertising from the Augusta Chronicle, and that was his punishment, uh, um, which is fairly weak in terms of someone who is so vastly undermining the administration in such a sensitive time. So would you say, just as we're running near the end of our time, that the, the initial uh, a statement you begin your book with about how the three bars on the, the stars and bars represented state, church, and press. Uh, is the press truly one of the three pillars of the Confederacy, or did it lead to its downfall? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, yes, yes, it's absolutely one of the pillars of the Confederacy. The, the Southerners said that over and over and over again. The press is the palladium of liberty. I can't tell you how many times I've read that in a Southern newspaper. By the same token, I think um, that the press did have some capability, or, or culpability, rather, excuse me, in the failure of the Confederacy to achieve its desired nationhood. Um, and I think it did that by, I'm not going to use the 19th century word licentiousness, but by perhaps um, being a bit more rambunctious than one might anticipate not being quite as supportive, and by not bolstering morale of the people as a result. Um, now, is it the role of the press to bolster the morale of the public? That's arguable. Uh, you could say it's not. You know, the press, the press's role is to tell the public the truth about what government is doing, and that's a contemporary attitude. But it's also an attitude that existed at the time. You can also argue another contemporary attitude, and that is that the the role of the press in wartime is to support the government. And I think that's another one of those questions that that's that's your political decision as to where you're going to fall on that. But I think that yes, the press was culpable, but. Um, uh, I'm not going to make a judgment on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, I think the readers can do that by reading this book, yes, The Confederate good. Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. Uh, its author, Deborah Redden Van Tool, has been our guest tonight. Debbie, it's a pleasure talking to you about this book. Uh, I hope it is successful and that uh, many people will read it. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it, and I always love talking about my uh, my Confederate colleagues, and, and by that I mean my Confederate journalists. <laughs> Since I'm a journalist as well, I consider colleagues. Well, I, I hope our listeners will enjoy as well reading the book. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.